Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read and talk about the last three verses of this chapter this morning. So Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14, says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this incredible promise that we can draw near to you, that you through the work of the cross have made yourself accessible to us, God, that you are waiting on high to have compassion on your people. And Lord, we confess that in times of difficulty, we tend to wander. And we go back into all sorts of silly things and we try to engineer and, and employ our own ingenuity and we do all this stuff when really we need you, Jesus. We need you and your mercy and your grace. And so we ask that you would make the reality of your throne larger in our hearts this morning. The fact that you are enthroned, that you're above all drama that you transcend all circumstances in our lives and in this world, that you are the judge that will one day set right every wrong, and that right now you are intimately and infinitely concerned with our lives. Lord, we're in awe of that. Help us to draw upon the resource that you are. You are to be our very sustenance. You said that you are the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. Help us to feast on you, that in times of need, we're nourished, and we know where to get more nourishment. Lord, capture our hearts and our minds this morning. And confess that we're a wayward, utterly selfish people. We want to be more concerned with you, your glory, your work, your honor, your praise, your fame, Jesus. So do a work in our hearts. Encourage our faith this morning. Lord, rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. We believe that you're wise and that you're merciful. And so we ask you to rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. Bring us into a deeper love affair with you, Lord. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, this book of Hebrews is all about the person Jesus. This book of Hebrews is all about the person Jesus, and we're just getting started in it, you know what I mean? We're not even a third of the way through it, and yet so much has been revealed to us already about who Jesus is. So let's cover what we learn in chapters 1 through 4 about Jesus. We learn that he is better than the prophets. We learn that he is better than the angels. He is the son of God and the heir of all things. He's the sustainer of the universe and the creator of the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. He is the high priest of perfection and he is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He has a more excellent name and he is the one that the angels adore. He is the exalted king, the Lord of righteousness, the anointed one, the eternal, the unchanging one, and the ultimate conqueror. He is crowned with glory and honor. He is the one for whom all things exist. 
He is the one that rendered the devil powerless. He is our deliverer. He is our helper. He is a merciful and faithful high priest, the one who is able to help the tempted, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, worthy of more glory than Moses, a faithful son, our Sabbath rest, a great high priest, a sympathetic high priest, and he is the sinless and enthroned one that brings us near. Jesus Christ. That's Jesus as has been revealed to us less than a third of the way through the book of Hebrews. Now in these three verses, there's some new ideas that are opened up to us. In verse 14, we learned of Jesus' perfect priesthood. His perfect priesthood. In verse 15, we learn of his perfect person. And in verse 16, his perfect provision. So there's the outline for our text today concerning Jesus, his perfect priesthood, his perfect person, and his perfect provision. Look in verse 14 one more time. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now we need to remember a little bit the context of the book of Hebrews. The book was written to some Hebrew Christians, that is Christians who are Jewish by descent, but who were previously Jewish by religion. It was written to some Hebrew Christians who were encountering difficult times. They were living in the Roman Empire, we believe under the Roman Emperor Nero, and there was a lot of persecution happening against the church at this time. Christians were being killed. Christianity became an illegal religion, religio illicita. It was illegal to be a Christian. It was punishable by death. And here are some Christians. They had never dealt with the situation before. They weren't sure how to. And so the letter is written to instruct them how to deal with difficult times and to let them know that what you do is you cling to Jesus. Because their tendency was very much like ours. They had a tendency to fall back on the old things. You know how you do that in hard times or just sort of second nature, you get in a difficult situation, you just sort of go back to what you know? Well, we don't need to do that as Christians anymore because we know someone new, Jesus Christ. We know something else. We know something more. But they were being tempted to fall back on what they knew, which was Judaism, and many of them were departing the faith. Now, Part of the attraction for them to Judaism was that religious system that had been established by God that was so tangible and so prevalent in Israel. That is to say, the temple, the sacrifices, and the priesthood. The temple, the sacrifices, and the priesthood. Furthermore, the key component of these things was the high priest. Israel had a high priest as ordained by God. And the goal of the author in the book of Hebrews is to show Christians that what we have in Christ is better than what is to be found in the temple, the sacrifices, and the priests. And that we also have a high priest. But what's more, the author intends to show that Jesus is superior to any other high priest that came before. Again, the high priest being sort of the centerpiece of the worship life of Israel. Jesus is called here in verse 14, a great high priest. And that will be the theme of chapters 5 through 10. It'll be an exposition of Jesus as a high priest. 
But when we think about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant and those things, it's important for us to realize that they were merely shadows of what was to come in the person of Jesus Christ. They were wonderful and good and neat and instructive and valuable and ordained by God. But they were incomplete. They were imperfect. They all pointed to Jesus Christ. And without Jesus Christ, they are void of ultimate purpose. They were mere shadows of what was to come. At least that's what the book of Colossians says, rightly so, in Colossians 2.17. About such things, it says that they are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance, or as the NIV and the ISV puts it, the reality belongs to Christ. Those other things only looked forward to, they were symbolic of, but the reality belongs to Jesus Christ. That verse, by the way, is where we get our name and our website, Jesus is Reality. One of the things that was most valued in Judaism, as I said, was the high priest. And so it's important for the author to show these Hebrew Christians that Christianity did not lack such an office, but rather that office was now transferred from the hands of men into the person of Jesus Christ. And so it rests. Jesus remains to be the high priest, and he is superior to any priest that ever came before. Now, we need to understand a little bit about what the high priest did by way of analogy to what Jesus has done. The high priest, being the main minister in the Old Testament worship structure, was generally responsible for representing God before the people and representing the people before God. Representing God before the people and the people before God. And the pinnacle of this representation, the pinnacle of this representative relationship was the Day of Atonement, also popularly known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It happens but once a year. It's ancient and ordained by God in the Torah, and it is still observed in Israel. I happen to be with many of you that were on our Israel trip last year in Jerusalem on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And what you see if you're, there, if you're there is that it is still the holiest day. The entire city shuts down. Not a single business is open. Not a single motor is started. There's not a car or a motorcycle or a bus or anything on the streets. Children play on the freeways on Yom Kippur. So, literally, literally. Such is the holiness of the day that an entire nation comes to an immediate halt. And the reason is they are seeking that God would forgive their sins. All the while realizing that there no longer stands a temple in Jerusalem, nor is there a priesthood, nor are sacrifices being made. It puts Israel in a precarious situation. But the way that it was observed during the temple period is this. The high priest would make a sacrifice out where the altar was in the outer court there. He would make a sacrifice. And then from that sacrifice, he would fill a bowl with blood from that sacrifice. And then he would leave that court and he would go into the holy place. The holy place is where the altar of incense was and the candelabra was there and, and, and the showbread was there. And once he was in the holy place, he would go beyond 
through the veil, the very veil that was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. He would go through the veil. This would happen but once a year with one man. He would go through the veil, and on the other side of that veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant contained some of the manna from the wilderness, a jar of that, Aaron's rod that budded, as well as the tablets of the Ten Commandments were in that Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had a lid on it, and on that lid were two cherubim who were facing in toward each other with their wings extended out toward one another. And that place was called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was where God manifests his Shekinah glory in Israel. I want you to notice a couple things. There was multiple degrees of separation between the glory of God, the presence of God, and the people of God. And so it was designed by God to communicate to the people of God his utter holiness, that he is altogether other. He is holy. And so around the tabernacle or the temple, you had the outer walls, and then you had the inner court, and then you had more walls, and then the holy place, and then another veil, and then finally the presence of God, but only once a year for one man and only by blood. And now one man also had to make a sacrifice for himself according to Leviticus chapter 16 because he himself had sins. And so before he could represent the nation, which is what that bowl of blood represented, was a covering for the sins of the nation. Before he could represent the nation before God, he himself had to have his sins covered. So there was a sacrifice that he had to make, and then he had to go through the ritual cleansing things. And Israel was so serious about the holiness of God, and they were so concerned about the non-holiness of their high priest that at times they made them wear bells on their gowns and a rope around their leg. Because they were concerned that one day the high priest might go in there and not have his sins covered for it, didn't do something right, and drop dead in God's presence. And if the priest dies in the presence of God, nobody else is allowed to go in by the ordination of God. So they had the rope around his ankle. And so they were listening for the bells, and as he's sprinkling the blood, they better hear the bells. And if the bells stop and he doesn't come out, they drag the poor sucker out by the rope. <laughs> they didn't dare go in. Such was the holiness of God as communicated by the design of God in the tabernacle in the temple. And so this high priest now, having gone through all these things, would take that bowl of blood and he would sprinkle some of the blood on the mercy seat. And it was a symbol. That animal was slain symbolically in their place. The animal died a substitutionary death died instead of them. And what it did, because of God's mercy, is it provided a covering for their sins as a nation for the next year. A covering for their sins, not a removal of their sins. Because as we'll learn later on in the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sins. That's why it was so profound when John the Baptist was baptizing at the Jordan River and Jesus walked up and John the Baptist pointed at him and said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, takes away. And the astute Jew went, wait a minute, John. Did you make a mistake? Because we're only used to temporary coverings through the blood of bulls and goats. What do you mean take away? 
You see, he would go in by the blood, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and God would cover the sins of the nation for one year. But then this had to happen year in and year out over and over again. There wasn't just that. That was only once a year for the nation. But there were sacrifices going on in the temple. Every single day, blood was spilt. In that temple, millions upon millions of gallons of blood were spilt for the sins of Israel. Because the wages of sin is death. And what could pay that price but only a life? God in his mercy, instead of taking their life, allowed the animals to die a substitutionary death in their place. But an animal cannot atone for, atone for excuse me, a human. It was only a temporary covering. Jesus Christ comes along. As the spotless lamb of God, without blemish, and he pays the price once and for all. And in this work of sacrifice, he then becomes our high priest because it was the high priest there for Israel that had to do the work of sacrifice. Jesus coming, doing the work, becomes the great high priest. He represents God and he does so perfectly. He represents God to us and he represents us before God. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So everything that came before was incomplete revelation. Verse 1 says of Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, verse 2, in these last days is spoken to us in his Son. Then it says in verse 3, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. All revelation that came before was incomplete. Jesus comes and gives us the full revelation of who God is. He's the exact representation, the full and final revelation. And so he represents God to humanity. Thus he is the high priest. But he represents humanity before God, also a ministry of the high priest. We see that represented in uh, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. John writes and says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Notice, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He's our advocate. He represents us before God, but he is also the one that paid our price. What is a propitiation? It is a sacrifice that satisfies. And Jesus Christ was the sacrifice that satisfied the righteous standard of God and the righteous wrath of God on our behalf. And because the standard of God and the wrath of God has been satisfied, we are now accepted by God only because of the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect high priest. And because his work is perfect, we can have a complete relationship with God. There's nothing lacking. We need to know this because we so frequently try to add to it or add Jesus to it. It's Jesus and. 
or it's this and that. Listen, everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness is found in the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. That's what Peter said, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Everything we need pertaining to life and godliness is found through the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. We can have a full, complete, satisfying relationship with God. Amen. If you're not finding your satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ, my brother, my sister, where do you expect to find it? And if you are trying to find it in a relationship with another being, or in material things that would burn. Your affections and your hopes have been sorely misplaced. You will never find satisfaction in those things. We can only find satisfaction in the perfect person of Jesus Christ and according to his perfect priestly work. And anything else, even the best of things, the Judaic, Hebraic worship system, the best of things are just a shadow. But the substance the reality is Jesus Christ. And notice it says in verse 14 of our text, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavenlies, he passed through the heavenlies. This tells us from whence his ministry comes. The high priests um, of the temple times, the Jewish high priests, they would leave the dwellings of all the people. You know, during the tabernacle, the people would be camped outside of the tabernacle and then uh, neighborhoods were built up once the temple was made in Jerusalem and they would pass from the dwellings of men into the house of God to do the work of God. But notice what Jesus did. He left the dwelling of God, came into the place of men to do the work of God on our behalf. That's what it means when it says he passed through the heavens. Now, it was a round trip. He came and he went. It was a round trip. And we don't want to forget the second part of the trip. When he went, we are told that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, denoting that the work is completed, that the work is finished by God's design, there were no seats in the temple area where the priests would work. God gave Moses a pattern for the tabernacle and subsequently David and Solomon for the temple. And there were no seats where the priests would do their work. That was God communicating to humanity that the work of covering the sins of people is never finished. It is never finished until the righteous one, Jesus Christ, comes. And when he was finished, and he said upon the cross, it is finished, tetelestai, John 19, 30. When he was finished, he ascended and he sat down at the right hand of majesty, denoting that our salvation is accomplished. It's important to remember that because I, I sometimes get feeling condemned, ashamed. I can beat myself up. That's not what God has for you and I. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Listen to what the word of God says. There is no condemnation. Therefore, if you are feeling condemned, it is a fabrication either of your own mind or some other person or Satan himself. But it is a fabrication. For the word of God says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God be for us, who can be against us? 
If God has declared us justified and righteous and accepted and holy, then who can bring accusation and who can condemn? You see, our salvation is completed once and for all. And we need to remember that day to day because the enemy wants to get us feeling so bad about ourselves. And we sometimes do it to ourselves and that's not the Lord's will for you. It is finished. He ascended and he sat down. And it was important for the audience here, these Hebrew Christians, to believe that in their present difficulty, Jesus was sufficient for them. That's what's being communicated. Because quite frankly, what they had in the old covenant was just real tangible. You know, the temple was a place they could go, they could see, and and the sacrifices they could see, in fact, they would have to put their hand on the sacrifice and then the throat was slit and the blood was let. And they saw that. It was very tangible. It was very tedious. It was gnarly, but tangible nonetheless. Christ has ascended. We're waiting for him to come again. And so their Christianity wasn't sort of panning out the way that they thought it would under the persecution of Nero. And so there was this tendency for them to forget the sufficiency of Christ and go back to what was more readily seemed accessible to them. It's a falsehood, but it seemed more readily accessible. So they were going back to Judaism. What they needed to know is Jesus Christ is sufficient for any difficulty that comes in life, for any difficulty. And to think otherwise is to not be dealing with reality. To think that you're going to find something somewhere else that is going to somehow do better than Jesus Christ, that's just not reality. That's as insane as the children of Israel when God brought them through the wilderness to Kadesh Barnea and said, go ahead and take the land, kids. Go into the Canaan. Go into Canaan. And they said, oh, it would have been better for us if we died in Egypt or died in the wilderness. Let's not go into the promised land. Let's kill Moses and get a new leader and go back to Egypt where we were slaves. Man, that's just not reality. That's insanity. It's just the way that we think so often. Isn't that? So we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is sufficient for every difficulty. And what we want to do, as it says here in verse 14, is hold fast our confession. When hard times come, hold fast to everything that you know about Jesus Christ. Hold fast in such a way that wherever he is, you are. That where he wants to be, that's where you will be. They were supposed to be in Canaan. It would not be free of difficulty, but it would be God's place at God's time for God's people. And there's no better place to be. God's place at God's time for God's people. That's what they missed out on because they didn't trust the Lord. Are you trusting the Lord? Are you clinging to the person of Jesus Christ that in times of difficulty, and they will come, amen, that you are in God's place at God's time? And I gotta ask you, because I gotta ask myself, is that descriptive of your life right now? Are you where God wants you to be right now, doing what God wants you to do? I don't mean right now in church. Of course you are. <laughs> I mean generally speaking in life. Are you where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do? Why? If not, why not? We must ask ourselves that from time to time. Martin Luther said, I check myself every five minutes lest I get off course. 
when you're navigating some sort of vessel, I used to go out to the island surfing a lot out here, and I used to navigate out of the harbor on a 210 course. And I, I would set that 210, and I'd hold that wheel, and every few seconds, I'd look down at that compass to make sure that I was still on course. Every few seconds. I didn't let 10 minutes go by. I didn't let an hour go by. I didn't let one minute go by. Every few seconds, I would check that compass to make sure I was on course. And if I wasn't on course, I would immediately correct and get on course. And to get to that island with that boat in rough seas was a lot of correcting. You got to check yourself frequently to make sure you're on course with the Lord. You're where he wants you to be at this moment. And if not, redirect. Get there. Repent. Change course. Do what you need to do to be where God wants you to be because there's no better place to be. There's no better place to be, especially in the midst of difficulty. And so we begin to see emerging from this text a protocol for times of pressure, a protocol for times of pressure. When we are struggling, we need to lay hold of the perfect priesthood of Jesus Christ that it is finished, that he has perfectly revealed God to us and he has perfectly represented us before God in the work of the cross, paying the price for our sins. It is done, paid in full. We have everything that we need in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to remember in times of difficulty his perfect priesthood. And then we need to think about his perfect person and then his perfect provision. Now concerning his perfect person, we see that in verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. There's a foundational truth. Jesus Christ is without sin. This is foundational to the Bible and to Christianity that Jesus Christ is without sin. That he was born without original sin, and he never sinned, nor will he ever sin. That he is perfect. This is a foundational truth as instructed, as taught in the scriptures. I was surprised a few years ago to find out that not every Christian was aware of that. I was teaching in a Bible study somewhere one time, and uh, a bunch of people, something like this, and I taught a sermon. I can't remember what it was on. And, and this guy came up to me afterwards, as people often do. I, it's wonderful. I love it. And just said, here's what's going on in my life. And here's where I'm blowing it. And can you counsel me a little bit and pray for me? And so, you know, I gave him a little bit of advice, I think. And I, I prayed for him and stuff. And afterwards, you know, he just kind of wanted to put the period on the conversation. You know how people want to do that. They want to kind of have the last word, which is no big deal. That's I'm fine with that. He just kind of wanted to have some little cool thing to say at the end, I think. And he was kind of like, oh, man, thanks so much, Pastor Britton. Yeah, I'm, you know, I've just been struggling. And I mean, I'm not perfect, but not even God is perfect. Oh. <laughs> I said, wait. I said, wait a minute, man. Th th this might be part of your problem. The compass might be off a little bit here. He is perfect. If there's a disconnect, it's with us. 
If something has gone awry, we're the problem, not God. If there's a mistake, it's not God. It says here that Jesus Christ is without sin. Hebrews 7 says it well, verses 26 and 27. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So he is the perfect person who had the perfect priesthood. The obvious implication of him being perfect and also the sacrifice for our sins is that he's able to pay for ours because he had none of his own. Only slightly less obvious is the fact that because he did not sin, he is able to sympathize with those who have sinned and do sin. Okay, now listen. This is counterintuitive. Let me say it again. Because he did not sin, he is able to sympathize with those who have sinned and those who do sin. It's counterintuitive. Here's what I, I mean. Uh, in my younger years, before I was walking with the Lord, I did a lot of drugs. I did a lot. Of, my parents are out of town today. I, <laughs> they are. They're really out of town. I did a lot of drugs. And having been delivered from that by Jesus Christ, one-step program. I have nothing against 12 steps. For me, the Lord did one. Yeah. However he does it for you, that's cool. I'm cool. But he delivered me. And now that he's delivered me, I often talk to and, and minister to and, and hang with, well, hang with is weird, but people that have drug problems, you know what I mean. And, uh, and so I, I feel like because I've been through that, I can sympathize with them. And I can minister to them on a certain level. And I think that's true. I'm able to say to them, brother, I've been there. I know what it's like to struggle with addiction. I know what it's like to go through this, that, and the other. I've been there. Now, that is a truth that I'm able to minister to them because I've been there. And I really believe from Corinthians that God helps us uh, go through what we got to go through, that we can help others get through what we've gone through, right? We're to comfort those with the comfort we receive from God. That is a truth. But, but a different truth is being communicated to us about Jesus Christ. He doesn't sympathize with us as sinners because he also has sinned. He is better able to sympathize and to help us because he hasn't sinned. C.S. Lewis, brilliant mind, explains it very well. Listen, quote, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. 
We never find out the strength of evil impulse inside of us until we fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Isn't that good? You see, the truth is nobody understands sin and temptation better than Jesus Christ because he fought it to the very end. As Hebrews 12 says, he resisted evil to the point of shedding blood. He fought to the very end. We don't know its full strength because we give up and give in. He never gave in, though he was tempted in Matthew 4. And though it was difficult in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if there's any other way for humanity to be saved, let's do that. Nevertheless, thy will be done. He never gave in to evil. Therefore, he understands its strength more than anybody else because he and he alone, only one, he and he alone has defeated it. And if you're up against an enormous enemy, who do you go to? Whoever beat it last. Whoever beat it last is going to have the best information for you. Jesus Christ beat sin. Therefore, he has the best information for us. And it is in his word. How can a young man keep his way pure except for according to the word of God? He has the most insight on what sin and evil is like. That's why we dive into the word of God. He is not only the conqueror, but he is a sympathetic high priest because he knows the full strength and the brunt of it. He really can sympathize with our weaknesses. Understand further that Christ's divinity, Christ is fully God and fully man. Christ's divinity did not keep him from experiencing our feelings, our emotions, our temptations, or even our pain. In his humanity, Jesus stood over Jerusalem and he wept. In his humanity, Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. In his humanity, he sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. He knows, he understands. He is not only the God who is there, he is the God who has been there. He's been there. He draped himself in humanity. But because he is God, Jesus has an unlimited capacity to sympathize with us, an unlimited capacity. And when we are troubled or hurt or despondent or tempted and need someone to talk to, turn to, lean on, Jesus is always there. He is always there, and he is an unending source of compassion and sympathy. He doesn't always pull us out of our circumstances, but he will always walk through them with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And he is sufficient. He is a sufficient source from which we can draw in times of difficulty. What does it mean to sympathize? It means to suffer with another, 
to be affected in like manner. Think about that. That the God of the universe is so kind toward us that when we are troubled, he is affected in like manner. In fact, Jesus said, see that sparrow that fell from its nest? My father knows about that sparrow. And you're infinitely more important. Our God is so incredible in his love that he is affected in like manner in our moments of difficulty. The King James actually says it well. Touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But then the sympathy goes beyond mere feeling and it beckons us into action. It beckons us into action. And that's where we finish in verse 16. It says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. So his perfect priesthood has accomplished all that we need for forgiveness of sins. Because of his perfect personhood, he was able to atone for our sins. And now he is our perfect provision. But realize that his perfect priesthood and his perfect person were entirely of himself and exist independent of us. Not so with his perfect provision. His perfect provision in our times of need is dependent upon our drawing near. The sentence in verse 16 is what you call a conditional sentence. An if-then statement If we draw near, then we will receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. It is dependent upon our willingness to draw near to him. If we draw near, we will receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. The flip side of that coin is, if you don't draw near to him in times of difficulty, you will find yourself lacking to face a challenge. And that's the problem is we so often go in the other direction when we need to be clinging to Jesus. We do this all the time. We're just like the audience that was being written to in the book of Hebrews. Tough times come and we fall back on what we know. Go back to what was tangible, what was easy, what was comfortable. And we're always looking for the path of least resistance and that gets us in a truckload of trouble. Do you know why a river meanders? It meanders because at one point, as the water was coming down the valley, it was looking for the place of least resistance. If it came up against a hard place, it would say, well, I'm not going to get through here. It would begin to flow to the right, found a soft spot, break through there, oh, hard spot, flow to the left, soft spot, so on and so forth. And then we have this crooked river meandering down this valley. If you're always looking for the path of least resistance in life, your life will be crooked. Proverbs says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be God's person at God's place at God's time. That's what you want to be. But you see, if you're always looking for the path of least resistance, you'll find yourself going in the wrong direction when you ought to be clinging to Jesus Christ. That's what these Hebrews were doing. Being a Christian, too much resistance. Let's go back to being Jews. They're not outlawed yet. You see? And we do that all the time. When the protocol is to cling to the person of Jesus Christ and then draw near with confidence. He is a God who has not only been there, but is there. 
And we're able to come with confidence. With boldness, it's translated. The high priest, once a year, and by blood, went in trembling. There's no question in my mind that every high priest that existed during that period of history was utterly terrified to go before the presence of God. We can enter boldly. With confidence, not arrogantly, not according to our own merit, not flippantly, but boldly. With confidence, we could enter in. This was revolutionary when this was revealed to the world because the predominant culture at the time, their thinking was very counter to God being accessible like that. For example... The Jews at this time believed that God was really sort of incapable of sharing our feelings. They believed that God was just too distant and too far removed from the nature of man. It just wasn't something that God did. He was too removed from the nature of man to share in our feelings. The Stoics, whose philosophy dominated much of Greek and Roman culture during New Testament times, believed that God's primary attribute attribute was apathy. That his primary attribute was that he didn't care is what the Stoics taught. Some of them went so far as to teach that, that God was without feelings or emotion altogether. He was apathetic toward humanity and our plight. They also had it wrong. There was another school of philosophy, the Epicureans, Greek philosophers. They believed that the gods lived intermundia, they said that is in a place between the physical and spiritual worlds, but not participating really in either. And so they could hardly be expected to understand the feelings and problems and needs of mortals. They were detached from mankind. The Jews thought that God was above it. The Stoics thought that God didn't care. And the Epicureans thought God was somewhere in between. Jesus came and turned it all on its head. And Jesus is the God that is here and available now for those who are in need. Therefore, let us enter boldly to the throne of grace. And please notice that it is a throne of grace. It is a throne of favor where we find mercy and help in the time of need. Before the cross, it was a throne of judgment. And because of the work of the cross, because he was a perfect person who had the perfect priesthood, has given us a perfect provision of forgiveness and help. Because of the cross, that throne of judgment becomes for us a throne of grace. If you reject Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross, then it remains for you a throne of judgment. John, no, excuse me, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, speak of the great white throne judgment where you will be condemned to hell if you reject the person in the work of Jesus Christ. It's a throne of grace when we come through the person of Jesus Christ. And there is utter accessibility. Any sinner who is repentant, no matter how dirty they feel, no matter what they've done, no matter how wicked it's been, any person that is repentant can approach God and expect to get mercy. It's not an if, it's not a maybe, it's not a I hope. 
That's why it says enter with confidence. It's a sure thing is what's being communicated. When you go to God in your failures, it is a sure thing that you will receive mercy because of the cross. When you go to him in time of difficulty, it is a sure thing that you will receive help in the time of need. That's who God is and that's what God does. And it's all because of the person of Jesus Christ, his perfect priesthood, his sinless life, and now his full provision for you and I. We are lacking in nothing through the person of Jesus Christ. The psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. Are you making God your refuge? He wants to be. Isaiah says he waits on high to have compassion. There is an unending source of sympathy, an unending resource of grace and mercy in the time of need. Are you coming to him? Are you at God's place at God's time? If you're having difficulty getting there, I know sometimes it's hard. Jesus gave us a great hint in John chapter 4, verse 23. He said, the Father's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father's seeking. So if you've been seeking the Lord, but you just feel some sort of disconnect, you have a hard time just getting there, get on your face. Worship God with every fiber of your being. And Jesus said, he'll come find you. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for these promises. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being so good to us, Jesus. Lord, we want to be found by you here. We're people that need help. We're people that need help, Lord. We're selfish and we're sinful, and we also live in a broken world, and so we get hurt. We get ripped off, people die, things go wrong. Thank you that you are the God who is there and the God who's been there and the God who cares. Thank you that we have unlimited access. Open up the heavenlies in this place, Lord. Your people need you. Holy Spirit, come pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. We need you, Lord. Lord, free your children from condemnation this morning. Free us from condemnation. It's not what you have for us, Lord. Break chains of shame and guilt and humiliation. Break them in this place. People that are bound in shame, set those captives free, Lord. And those who are bound up in their sin, imprisoned to it, set them free, Lord. You're the perfect priest. May the perfect sacrifice upon the cross whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Set the captives free, Lord. Prayer team is here to help you this morning. Man, if you're struggling, get on your face. Worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. He'll come and get you.